bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. The big news in this episode is coming out of Manitoba. In November, the Manitoba government reported that it had confirmed that a mule deer buck that was not doing very well or very healthy, that was euthanized, uh, was tested positive for CWD. <clears throat> so CWD is uh, currently in Saskatchewan and Alberta, and this is the first time it's been discovered east uh, into Manitoba. So that's super uh, unfortunate. <clears throat> Manitoba uh, government Uh, immediately implemented a ban on uh, deer, moose, caribou, and elk hunting in the area that this CWD mule deer buck came from. Um, And it was in game hunting area number 22, part of game area uh, 22. So the government issued a statement that uh, it's going to do some more sampling uh, to try to determine the prevalence rate in uh, ungulates in that area. And they stated, the government stated, that um, there was currently at this time no indication that there's any connection to the farmed elk populations, the farmed elk uh, operations in Manitoba contributing um, to CWD being found for the first time in wild deer. So super unfortunate for Manitoba. Hopefully they can uh, pull it off like New York State did uh, and kind of do some intensive sampling and some culling. And uh, New York State was able to basically prevent uh, an outbreak of CWD in the white-tailed deer population because they got on it really early. So um, I hope Manitoba can do the same. In uh, mid-November, there was a study out of the United States published um, that showed that uh, 40 percent uh, or more white-tailed deer in this uh, study area in the U.S. had the antibodies for the virus that causes COVID-19. So what that means is that the SARS-CoV-2, the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, Syndrome Coronavirus 2, which causes the COVID-19 disease or the coronavirus um, disease 2019. That's how that works. Um, So the deer in the U.S. study had the antibodies showing that they had once contracted and their bodies developed the antibodies for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, coronavirus. Um, Since that study, just at the end of November, the first cases of COVID-19 or deer in Canada um, were found in the S3 region of Quebec. Uh, The deer were healthy, otherwise healthy, showed no signs of any disease or clinical symptoms or anything. And they were confirmed uh, to have had the SARS-CoV-2 virus as well. So uh, COVID-19 is getting into uh, white-tailed deer in the United States, and for the first time it was discovered in Canada. 
so apparently uh, the studies that were done in the U.S. said there's um, been no known transmission of the SARS-CoV-2 virus from deer to humans. So it appears that deer are getting it from humans, um, but there's no evidence yet that they're trans transmitting it back. So uh, that's something that, uh, you know, obviously all scientists are going to stay on top of and health officials, you know, around the country is if there was the ability for um, deer essentially to be a vector, they get infected by humans, move and then reinfect reinfect humans. Um, so everything I've kind of read and been following a little bit about, especially when the story first broke down in the U.S. about uh, COVID in the white-tailed deer, is it doesn't appear to affect them, not like it is humans of going into um, acute respiratory failure. Uh, it, the deer seem to get it. They develop antibodies. Their bodies get rid of it, and they carry on because uh, both the U.S. and the Canadian studies said that the white-tailed deer um, weren't weren't apparently sick. They were they were healthy animals, um, but they had the antibodies, meaning that their bodies had got the virus and dealt with it and got rid of it. So, <clears throat> kind of crazy. Um, jumping over to uh, the big global conference that happened uh, last month in the UK, the United Nations Climate Change Conference was also called COP26. <clears throat> At that conference, Ducks Unlimited Canada, one of Canada's largest and longest standing conservation organization that's been supported by hunters, waterfowl hunters across the country, um, presented a climate change solution um, to the United Nations. So, the you know, all of the, the countries of the world uh, based on some some research, and so what Ducks Unlimited Canada presented was, they talked about Canada's peatlands, the peatland type of uh, ecosystem. It's a wetland that's made up of peat bogs, uh, um, sphagnum peat bogs. So these can be you know thousands and tens of thousand years old. These <clears throat> these ancient peatlands uh, or peat bogs, sometimes as they're referred to. Uh, so, so Ducks Unlimited Canada said that peatlands um, are very prevalent in Canada's boreal forest uh, that extends from the Yukon through northern BC all the way west over to Newfoundland and Labrador in the east. <clears throat> and these peatlands are um, ecosystems that are carbon rich. They store and sequester more carbon than any other type of terrestrial ecosystem. Uh, Ducks Unlimited Canada said that it is estimated that about a quarter of the world's carbon is held in Canada's force habitat through peatlands. So officials that spoke from Ducks Unlimited Canada at the, at the COP26 conference said they're stressing the need for conservation activities that both increase the amount of carbon absorbed by wetlands and maintained or there's already contained within these wetlands. So when the left when the wetlands, when the peat bogs are left unaltered and undisturbed, the carbon that's stored in them uh, will not be released into the atmosphere. But when the peatlands are um, mined, degraded, um, 
you know, they dry out, they're drained, then they release their stored carbon, carbon that's been stored for tens of thousands of years back into the atmosphere, which is contributing to climate change. Um, the boreal region of Canada is one of Ducks Unlimited Canada's highest priority areas for conservation. And DUC has helped influence and secure protection for more than 120 million acres of wetlands in Canada and their associated natural habitats through partnerships and policy efforts that DUC leads. So a little interesting caveat to this story. A number of years ago, I was at a conference where some experts from the cannabis industry presented on uh, the cannabis industry. And this was just prior to cannabis uh, becoming legalized in British Columbia, where I live. One of the shocking things about that sector is the amount of carbon dioxide it releases for every gram of cannabis product that it produces. Uh, like, like it's in orders of magnitude. It was like tons of CO2 released per gram of cannabis product that was, that was created. Um, it, they're very energy intensive um, operations. But the relationship here to climate change and peat bogs and what Ducks Unlimited Canada was talking about is peat, which you buy in your horticulture garden stores as peat moss, is the decomposed sphagnum moss that's mined from native peat bogs. And all over the country, there's literally mine operations that mine these ancient peat bogs. They get down into the deep layers where it's been decomposed. And when they do that, then the carbon gets released. Peat is not a really good rooting material long term. So what this expert in the cannabis trade was saying that in the nurseries, they use peat, um, rock wool, is not kind of like the mainstream rooting medium. It's still peat, mined from peat bogs, is it can only be used for one crop. And then the peat is dumped, and then it's replenished. And so the plants, um, peat bog, peat, peat moss holds moisture, uh, and it's acidic, and it's got all these great growing conditions for, for plants. But its nutrients are used up really quickly by a crop and then it has to be tossed and new stuff put in. And in that process, even when it's tossed, uh, it's exposed to the air and it oxidizes and it releases more of the stored carbon that the plants haven't taken up. So, so the relationship here is when it comes to climate change, Ducks Unlimited Canada was talking about the need to preserve Canada's peatland bogs. Yet in Canada... Over the last number of years, we've ramped up the cannabis industry through legalization, which is accelerating the mining of natural peat bogs. So, interesting connection. So back in 2019, uh, our Prime Minister uh, Trudeau advised the Federal Minister of Oceans to work with the province of British Columbia and indigenous communities 
to quote unquote create a responsible transition from open net pen salmon farming in coastal British Columbia waters by 2025. So you know I've been covering some of the stories about the controversy around ocean-based um, salmon farming operations and the diseases and the sea lice and the impacts that those the, the science has shown happens to wild salmon stalks um, that are migrating through these archipelagos and these these bays and stuff where these um, uh, salmon farms are. And the big ones off the coast of BC are the Discovery Islands and Broughton Archipelago area. Um, There was uh, fish farms there that the federal government said that it was going to phase out uh, as part of this directive from the Prime Minister back in 2019. But on November 30th, um, there was a news release that there are going to be 12 expansions of fish farming operations off the coast of British Columbia, including an entirely new 4,400 metric ton open net salmon farm that is proposed to be developed in the Discovery Islands Broughton Archipelago area where the open net salmon salmon farms are already being phased out. So I don't know what's going on with these salmon, ocean-based salmon farming operations off the coast of BC. Uh, It seems to be a game of ping pong. Uh, It's crazy. Um, You know, First Nations want the farms out. Scientists say they're not good for wild salmon stocks. We've seen historic, historic lows and and complete population collapses of numerous salmon species uh, in southern British Columbia and the Fraser River uh, runs this year. And scientists are just saying that um, these open ocean, open net salmon farms are one of the contributing factors to wild salmon stock declines. Crazy shit. Speaking of coastal British Columbia, so just uh, last week or so, the Raincoast Conservation Foundation on Coastal BC announced a brand new fundraising initiative to raise $1.92 million to buy another guide outfitting license in the Great Bear Rainforest so that it can stop hunting. It can stop non-residents from coming into the province and being guided uh, on hunts. So these guide operations were kind of, um, had their businesses yanked out from underneath of them when the grizzly bear band came in in 2017 because they were primarily, the hunters that were coming in were hunting coastal grizzly bears. Um, So they're, you know, bread and butter hunts, so to speak. Uh, Grizzly bears, they've already lost that. And so Raincoast Conservation Foundation has been buying up these guide territories to hedge their bets against uh, if a government's ever changed hands and decided to bring the grizzly bear hunt back, that they would secure all these tenures and they would not allow uh, or book grizzly bear hunts. 
if you want to know more of my thoughts about this, um, what Rain Coast is planning to do and have done, um, go over to the Hunter Conservationist uh, YouTube channel and check out my latest episode of uh, On the Hunter's Radar Screen. So, and I do a little uh, op-ed, goes into more detail about my thoughts around the question of is buying trophy hunting rights good for conservation? A few episodes ago, I was talking to you about a controversial deer cull um, in the Longueuil area of Quebec uh, on the outskirts of Montreal. So there was a, a plan to cull 15 deer uh, that lived in a park, um, the Michel Chartrand Park. Um, they were kind of, their numbers were getting high. They were eating themselves out of house and home. So they were going to cull 15 of these deers. And this led to a huge public outcry, protesting. And in fact, the former mayor of Longueuil, the mayor's life was threatened by somebody. Protesters were arrested during these large-scale demonstrations. So Longueuil's new mayor said she wants to go ahead and understands the science behind the need for a cull, and she said she's not backing down. Now, almost a year later, the cull is growing because the deer population's growing and they're looking at culling 60 deer out of the park, uh, which is near the middle of Montreal's South Shore. So, and there was an animal rights group came out of the woodwork uh, last year about this and they came up with a plan. They presented it to government. Um, the Sauvantage Animal Rescue Group proposed to capture and relocate the deer. Um, but the government's um, Veterinary Ethics Committee last this past February um, rejected uh, the proposal based on uh, the way the proposal was set up and the ethics around animal welfare with what this animal rescue group was proposing and how they were proposing to catch and move these deer. So the decision to cull uh, about 60 deer, I think apparently the herd's around 100, um, comes on comes from a committee that the city struck of citizens, experts, and scientists. They were brought together. They spent a number of uh, months going over the situation, reports, um, and um, the science surrounding this. Uh, and they basically, this uh, committee, uh, a roundtable, sort of came to the conclusion and made a recommendation to the mayor that um, that 60 deer should, should come out of this herd before the herd gets too big and does any more damage to kind of upset the balance in, in the ecosystems of the park. So, um, yeah, so deer call going to take place in Montreal. wonder what's going to happen there when that goes to take place. So I'll let you know. Probably some crazy protests are going to take place. On some of the other episodes, uh, I talked about this cormorant cull in Ontario on the Great Lakes. Um, so there was a, uh, a lobby, f you know, by hunters 
and anglers a number of years ago in Ontario about the cormorant population, these seabirds, sea colonies. Um, they were kind of getting out of control and they were blaming the cormorants on the decline of fish populations of species that anglers like to catch. So the government created a hunt, basically a call hunt. Uh, hunters can just go shoot them and they don't have to, they don't have to use them. Apparently nobody eats them because they're really fishy tasting. So this year, um, is the second year of this cormorant hunt. It started on 15th of September. It goes through till the end of this month, uh, December 31st. A retired biologist who's been fighting this um, uh, hunt, hunting season, said that um, that the eastern colony, the eastern cormorant colony in Ontario is dwindling um, since this hunt started and said, uh, you know, that the hunt, uh, has left the colony on the brink of survival. Um, this retired biologist said in 2015, there were 90 birds in the colony and they're down to 43 as of this past summer. So the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters were one of the groups that were lobbying the Ontario government to address people's concerns over the, the growing, cormorant population and it was kind of my understanding or my read on this was some type of management actions which could inv- could have involved uh, oiling or addling shaking eggs and nests and not actually like shooting having an open hunting season on birds there's a number of different ways of managing uh, bird colony numbers uh, that are that are getting like large and um so the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters was one of the groups that was lobbying the Ontario government to like do something about people's concerns. The other thing these cormorants do is they create these big colonies and they just absolutely, so many of them and they're pooping so much and their poop is so acidic that they basically, it's like Agent Orange, they destroy these little islands. You know, just like completely like scorched earth, kills the trees, vegetation. It just looks like, you know, something out of a post-apocalyptic movie or, you know, Hollywood movie or something. So uh, a spokesperson for uh, Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters um, said that that they, they wanted the government to do something. The Federation pushed for active management of the cormorant population, but later had mixed feelings when the province proposed a blanket hunting season um, on the cormorants as opposed to some other type of management. So scientists have come out of the, uh, you know, sort of made public statements that, you know, the declines of the fish are because of the fishermen and overfishing and, and the cormorants are being blamed when they're not actually the cause of the fish population declines. It, it, it's a story that that pretty much kind of echoes the the situation in northern Alberta and northern British Columbia with the government's wolf control programs for endangered caribou. Um, but this is it's a bird, uh, it's a cormorant, and um, very very similar. You could literally take you know cormorant out and plug wolf into these stories and and they're they're almost the same they're parallel like same issues the same kind of people on both sides of the story saying the same things um 
that's kind of an interesting thing I have found about this following this cormorant call story is the parallels to, to wolf management in the western part of Canada. Um, last year, I covered this story about this huge controversy uh, about moose hunting in an area of Quebec where the Algonquin Anishinaabe Nation um, basically put up uh, a bunch of roadblocks, blockades, barricades, and wanted non-Indigenous hunters, moose hunters, out of their ancestral lands uh, because they were concerned that um, there was too many moose being shot and they were not able to meet their sustenance needs because the moose populations were declining from from too many non-indigenous hunters and there was a like a lot of bad stuff happened these big blockades there was you know violence and um you know protesters and vehicles and harassment and just bad stories you know about people being uh, harassed uh, out in the woods and you know escorted out of areas and you know and stuff and so the government stepped in and they um, developed uh, they put a two-year moratorium in place and they uh, developed a, an agreement with the Algonquin chiefs um, to basically take a step back and study the moose population first and, and see if they can actually figure out what's happening to the moose population. Is there a real problem with non-Indigenous hunters and Indigenous people not being able to meet their sustenance needs? Is the, is the moose population stable, increasing, decreasing, you know, all that sort of stuff that, that a good baseline study is going to come um, out of the woodwork. Uh, so I, I listened to this one news story out of Quebec and there were still confrontations in the woods during the moose hunting season uh, in this area of Quebec. Uh, not as bad as last year, um, but there seems to be a lot of um, uh, or some dissension in the First Nations community um, that some people don't feel that these negotiations involved all of the communities, some think that it's not the 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 action is not um, moving quickly enough, and there's basically you know still harassment of um, uh, indigenous people going on that are you know trying to protest and protect the the land and stuff, and and basically you know they're concerned that there's sort of like another year left in this this moratorium under this uh, uh, agreement between the Algonquin chiefs and and the government and. Um, yeah, it sounds like things are uneasy in Quebec, uh, in this area where the moose moratorium is and, uh, time will tell. I hope they get this all sorted out before next hunting season. I hate seeing these things happen on the ground. We've seen a lot of this the last couple of years across Canada with caribou and, uh, stuff in Northern British Columbia and Quebec here and stuff. And it's just, it's a horrible, horrible way to pe for people um, to try to, you know, solve their problems for Indigenous people to uh, be confronting non-Indigenous hunters like out in the woods, you know, because of their concerns about, you know, their rights and, and rights to, to hunt and stuff. And I uh, just just don't like that way of doing things. I understand that protests will bring issues to light and then get action on it. But 
things can go so wrong, you know, when you have people with firearms and stuff out there. I just, I just dread the day where one of these confrontations out in the, in the woods leads to something horrible. And I really, really hope and encourage non-Indigenous hunters like across Canada um, to start meeting and talking with your local Indigenous communities, you know, and, and, and listen and learn, you know, and, and, and try to develop relationships, understand, uh, and maybe proactively find ways to collaborate on things, you know, whatever they happen to be of importance where you live. And, and let's, let's try to stop these confrontations out in the woods, these blockades and stuff from happening. And I think first and foremost, I think what non-Indigenous hunters across the country can do is try to understand what First Nations are saying and what their concerns are, uh, and then find out, you know, what can be done to um, maybe support learning more studies, um, you know, to help answer some questions and maybe advocating to governments of changing some hunting regulations or doing something new. And, and, uh, I, I think that's a far, a far more proactive way and a more, uh, safe way, you know, to start, I guess, addressing concerns that are happening all across the country. So I was looking at a study, um, it's actually at a New York City because so so in the middle of November um, there was the time change switch to daylight savings time, and so there was this study that was done uh, in New York State uh, that looked at the impact of changing the times uh, and deer vehicle collisions. And I kind of thought this was sort of interesting because you know now it's December we're losing light even faster you know every day. Uh, and that seems to accelerate when the time change comes in the fall. So uh, what this study in New York found is that in the springtime, uh, deer vehicle accidents are kind of at their lowest. And so when the time change happens in the spring, that means later sunrise and later sunset, which is kind of better for deer vehicle accidents because deer vehicle accidents happen at... Um, the 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 dawn and dusk periods so low light animals are just starting to move because uh, that's you know they're they're active you know dawn and dusk and through the night it's hard to see and so there's there's more accidents so in the springtime the the uh, the change um, the time change resulted in small decreases of deer vehicle accidents just because there was not that many deer accidents to start out with in the spring. It's the fall when there's a huge spike in vehicle collisions with the deer. And that's primarily attributed to the fall being the rut. So, so deer are more active, more aggressive, bucks are traveling, does are moving, they're chasing each other, all that kind of stuff. And so there's more collisions in the fall. Um, so the earlier the sunrise, and sunset uh, that happens in the fall, the, the, the loss of those, the earlier the sun rises and, and sunsets, then that was leading to more deer vehicle accidents. So when you shifted the clock in the fall 
then even more people were on the roads during the high-risk dusk hours. And dusk was worse for vehicle deer collision than dawn uh, by quite a bit, actually. So that fall time change is putting more people on the road at the dusk hours. And the consequences is that the the, uh, numbers of deer... Um, that commuters were hitting saw a 72% increase in accidents. And there was a decrease of accidents in the fall during, during the dawn period, but there was a huge increase in deer being hit in the dawn or the dusk hours uh, just after the time change. So overall, um, there was about a 20% increase in accidents during high peak commuter commuter hours uh, the week after the time change in New York. So um, basically, the time change kills more deer, causes more accidents, maybe more people are injured, more vehicle damage. Simply by humans changing our clocks, we're killing roughly about 20% more deer during the fall in New York. And and I would probably say this trend is probably happens all over North America. Uh, New York probably just happens to be uh, worse off because they got millions of more people, you know, on the road. But um, yeah, that's a pretty shocking statistic. Um, 72% more accidents in, in the, the evening in the fall and roughly a 20% increase in accidents a week after the fall time change. Let's get rid of the fall time change. Get rid of this both the time changes. You want to save wildlife rather than buying guide outfitter licenses when you lobby to get this whole thing of the time change tossed out. Probably save more animals. So Quebec has a number of endangered caribou herds that are on the brink of extinction. And one of the things that the Quebec government has done is created these fenced uh, areas and around sort of the, the, the remaining herds in different regions that are on the verge of extinction. And um, they're, they put up a fence, um, that only of around a herd that only had seven animals left in the Val d'Or region of Quebec. And the government just announced that it's going to put, uh, the more fenced enclosures around the Chauvois and the Gaspé region, Quebec, or, uh, caribou herds in Quebec. Uh, they're the next one slated to be basically fenced in. And so what they do is they fence them in and then they hire trappers um, to basically go in and intensify the killing of wolves and other, other predators in, in and around these uh, penning areas, basically so that the females that are giving birth to calves in the springtime, they're increasing the recruitment of calves. Uh, they're doing a little bit of that. Uh, the Solto First Nation is doing some maternal penning in northeastern British Columbia on an endangered caribou herd and showing some really uh, positive increases in caribou uh, populations from wolf control and maternal penning. But um, 
this doesn't come without controversy in Quebec. So basically people, you know, are saying scientists and environmentalists and conservationists are saying you're still logging endangered caribou habitat, old growth habitat. Uh, You're putting roads in and you're not doing anything to fix those habitat issues that are the drivers of why caribou herds are on the brink of extinction. And then you're building fences, putting the females into the fenced areas to give birth and you're killing wolves, but you're not doing anything to fix their habitat and the cumulative impacts of industrial activities on the landscape. And so similar, similar story in British Columbia and Alberta, uh, when it comes to the wolf control programs and in the caribou recovery areas, people are saying you're not doing anything to fix the habitat impacts and all you're doing is just killing wolves. Um, so, uh, again, another one of those stories, uh, that kind of, you, you see this, the parallel, uh, the same things kind of echoed, uh, from one side of the, the country to the other, uh, this time it's in Quebec and it actually is with caribou. Um, but the same, the same complaints, the same criticisms of killing wolves, uh, and not addressing, addressing habitat issues. In Quebec's case, they're basically fencing these really small herds, 7, 10, 12, 20 animals, and hoping that they will reproduce and restore the populations. Where the habitat's going to be to release said caribou doesn't seem like it's happening in Quebec. Um, Done several stories this fall about bear attacks. Uh, there was quite a few in Alberta, uh, over the summer, spring, summer, and, and early part of the fall. And there was another attack in Alberta this fall. Uh, a, a man, uh, in Airdrie, Alberta was just North of Calgary was attacked, um, fairly seriously, ended up, uh, going in for, in, in, uh, for medical, uh, treatment. But this time, it wasn't a bear, it was a moose. <laughs> so that's the, so far the only story I've seen in all of Canada this year of a moose attacking a person. And it happened in in uh, Alberta. There was coyote attacks in Alberta. There was black bear, grizzly bear attacks, several fatalities of bear attacks in Alberta. And a guy was almost killed by a moose. It was a crazy year in Alberta for wildlife encounters. So in Alberta, the Alberta government announced this fall that it was making changes to its Trails Act, the Alberta Trails Act. So it's the legislation that kind of sanctions hiking and off-road vehicle trails on public crown land. So it's, it's, it was a controversial announcement, um, for people that don't want to see more roads and trails on, on the landscape. So the government announcement said that, um, that the amendment to the Alberta Trails Act is going to provide an increase in the 
legislated designated trails in the province um, and that they will have environmental standards that they the trails have to adhere to but the act is not addressing the closure of any existing trails uh, the, ch- the changes in the legislation are going to allow volunteer groups from uh, quad groups to mountain bike um, groups to apply to have trails designated and protected under the act. So from what I understand, it's going to kind of allow these user groups to actually like sort of take ownership of the trails, uh, whether a quad group or a mountain bike or a hiking group or whatever. And, um, one of the statements I read from a quad group is like they thought this was a great thing because now that gives them the ability um, to go in and fix trails that are causing damage and, you know, and, and um, do some restoration and, and then take ownership of these trails and, and keep them up to, you know, to standards that aren't causing uh, damage to the environment. But during this whole kerfuffle, there's the other side of the story, and it's the conservationists and the scientists and stuff that are just saying you've got way too many trails and ORV roads and and industrial linear features on the landscapes in many areas of Alberta, and you've way exceeded some of the targets of road density, trail density on the landscape already. Um, so the fact that the act is not planning to reduce any trails or allow for rehabilitation is concerning a lot of conservationists and conservation scientists. And, uh, during this whole kerfuffle, there was about four scientific studies, um, including government funded studies that basically concluded that road and trail densities are already harming populations of caribou, grizzly bears, and bull trout uh, in Alberta, and um, especially in areas where it's the off-road, off-highway vehicle use that's been um, heavily impacting these trail systems. So, yeah, again, Alberta sort of at the center of some controversies that are going on on public lands uh, this year. You know, there's the whole issue of the coal mines um, and the coal, you know, the coal moratorium in the Rockies being rescinded and put back in place and everything. So Alberta's been busy this year with uh, all of these government-led changes to uh, public land. So some people are happy and some people aren't. So in the last episode, I... uh, did a story about the Ontario um, government basically coming out with a wild pig policy um, that was supported by the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters, laid out a policy and a plan for dealing with the, um, the risk of wild pigs expanding into Ontario. Um, they wreak havoc on native wildlife and native ecosystems and agricultural lands. One of the controversial parts about that new policy was is was is uh, hunters are prohibited from shooting wild pigs because research has shown that when you start hunting these invasive wild pig populations, the hunting actually makes it worse. 
it's hunting is not effective in wiping out entire groups, um, you know, from a control invasive species control perspective and the hunting pressure just forces pigs to start becoming nocturnal going into thicker riparian areas and then expanding out across the landscape to get away from the hunting pressure so it's kind of making the problem worse so on the heels of this announcement in Ontario of the new policy and practices around dealing with invasive wild pigs came the report of four Eurasian wild boars that were running loose in the Pickering, Ontario area. So the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry in Ontario are having to plan uh, an operation to try to bait and capture um, these escaped wild boars. So it didn't take them very long and they are having to put their policy and plan into place in Ontario for wild pigs. 2021 was kind of a big year for coyotes and coyotes attacks, especially all the ones in Stanley Park in Vancouver, and as well as Alberta. Alberta had its fair share of um, coyote attacks in 2020. There was a little girl severely mauled by a coyote up in the Edmonton area, in the head and air, you know, bit in the head and stuff. And so, a biologist from the University of Alberta in Edmonton, um, Dr. Colleen Cassidy St. Clair, um, was recently in the news saying that sightings of coyotes in Edmonton were down in 2021, but the coyotes seem to be getting bolder, um, meaning that they're less scared from people, they're approaching closer, um, they're just bold. Uh, the Dr. Cassidy St. Clair said uh, she started this coyote project in 2010 and she's seen increases in the numbers of coyotes in the Edmonton area uh, since 2010, so over the ten, last 10-11 years, and estimates that the city's coyote population is between 500 and 1,000 coyotes. Uh, with the the bulk of them living in the river valley, if you know Edmonton, you know, um, so some great natural habitat down there in the river valley bottom uh, for coyotes to live and lots of things for them to eat right smack in the middle of the city. And so Edmonton has a ton of coyotes. What's crazy is, is like the, the sightings are down for that many animals Stanley Park in Vancouver does not have that many coyotes, but they had nearly like 50 incidents this year of people being bit by coyotes. So uh, definitely something very different between the coyotes and their attitudes and their behaviors and how they're interacting with people in Stanley Park versus uh, Edmonton. Finally, last month, um, there was a really interesting story kind of connecting Canada and Germany. So Germany at one time was the second largest market in the world for seal pelts that came out of the Canadian fur harvesting industry, primarily supplied by the Inuit people of northern Canada and fur harvesters. And in 20 so so today in 2021 um germany along with 26 other countries in the european union 
have bans on the importation, trade, and sale of seal products. The European Union made a statement years ago about why they brought in this seal fur trade ban. And they said basically it's because of a long-held belief by animal activists around the world that seal culling is inhumane. And at the beginning of 2021, um, the start of the Canadian seal hunt in the Arctic, the Belgium-based International Fund for Animal Welfare said the ongoing practice is, quote-unquote, beneath the dignity of such a progressive nation as Canada. Since the European Union, Germany has put in this uh, ban uh, on seal skins, uh, which has basically becomes a ban on the livelihood of Inuit people in Canada. Uh, that's increased the poverty uh, and affected negatively affects the perceptions that people have of Inuit culture around the world. I mean, Inuit were the main harvesters of the seal. That was a livelihood. And when companies are coming, or organizations, animal welfare organizations that are saying that the seal fur harvest is beneath the dignity, um, that's a direct, you know, um, impact to how people in the world think of Inuit people. So Canada's new governor general, Mary May Simon, is Inuit. And last month, she was in Germany, met with heads of state, including Germany's um, president. So one of the things she wanted, to, one of the things she did is she had a necklace that was made out of seal skin. It was like a big flower with all these petals and stuff in it. Really, really neat. So um, she wore that necklace to a black tie dinner with Germany's president. And she said, when they ask me about my necklace, you know, how people sort of start off the conversations, oh, that's a beautiful necklace. Where did you get that? Um, so she said, when they ask her about her necklace, she gets to talk about it. She gets to talk about it. So she said, I'm educating people in Germany about who we Inuit people are. And she's learning about German people and German culture. So Governor General Mary Say Simon said that that has been a very positive experience in this outward display of Inuit culture wearing sealskin. She's able to use that in a very, very intuitive human nature way, like how people see something and they ask you a question and want to start that conversation. I just think that's brilliant. Is she was able to segue into telling people about Inuit culture, about seals, about seal fur, what it means to them, their culture, their way of life, and the impact of Germany's ban on the importation of seal skins and what that's had on Inuit culture and people. 
I think that was absolutely brilliant. Um, that's an amazing story. And I think it's kind of a lesson I want to leave you with here as I close out is if you're a hunter in Canada, there's a tremendous amount or a trapper or even a fisherman. Um, I mean, there's a huge number of issues across the country that we're battling with you know, the, these, these same things of perceptions about what hunting is, about what trapping is, about what fishing for your own food is. And there's a very good lesson in here about the nuance that Governor General Mary Mae Simon took of having this little thing, this little symbol of, of her culture and of seal, the seal fur harvest and she was able to use that to open a dialogue in a very formal setting, understand the people she was talking with, be able to tell them her side of the story. So I see some lessons learned for our hunting, trapping, and fishing community in Canada to learn from this strategy of our Governor General uh, in a very responsible and you know, respectful way to engage people on something that's very controversial, like seal, seal fur harvesting, um, but to do it with the highest level of dignity, but not be scared to be able to explain Inuit culture, perceptions, and how detrimental these bans are on people's ways of life. So hopefully there's something in there you can get an idea. Maybe you can use that this Christmas with your family. I hear from lots of people who love to hunt or trap, but they're part of families that are kind of like not really the subject to bring up at the dinner table. Maybe try that. I wear a necklace that's got the ivory of an elk tooth, so the ivory elk tooth, um, from the very, very first elk I ever harvested when I was 17 years old. And I wear this around my neck. So same kind of idea. Maybe look for something this Christmas, if that's the type of family that you have, and take this strategy and open up a dialogue, learn about a different perspective, and use that as an opportunity to say why you hunted, why you harvested that animal, what an ivory is, how many people that don't hunt know that our Rocky Mountain elk in Western Canada have actually got an ivory, which is a recessed tusk from their ancient relatives. Stuff like that, I think, is a great way to break down barriers between non-hunters, non-trappers, and hunters and trappers. So anyways, that's what's going on around Canada, and we'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>